All right, well, I have the super fun job of introducing our guest speaker today, someone whose energy we love here at Current. Uh, pastor Mark Lee is the founding and lead pastor of Vantage Point Church in Eastvale, California. And David and I actually heard Mark speak about church planting before we even knew that God was going to tell us to plant a church. We had gone down to a conference just because our friends were going. And we just happened to be in a breakout session about the nuts and bolts of church planting that Mark was sharing at, I think, when Vantage Point was pretty young. And I remember our, our daughter was just a baby at the time. I remember bouncing her in Ergo in the back and uh, listening to him talk about how they would do outreach and how they were, like, handing out granola bars and water, and he's a runner, so that makes sense, um, you know, and how that sounded really fun. And fast forward a couple of years, and there we were at the Mountain View Art and Wine Festival passing out balloons and sticky hands so that we could start conversations uh, with people uh, about this new church current that was starting at Mountain View. So thank you for being an inspiration then, and thank you for all of the encouragement that you've been to us uh, through the years, Mark. We're so happy to have you here. Can we, we can't think of someone to pump us up for two gatherings with more excitement than Mark, so can you give him a warm welcome? Thank you so much. Well, it's great to be here. Super excited to be back in the Bay Area. I used to live in the Bay Area from 1975 to 1985. So that is when Silicon Valley actually became Silicon Valley. And it's nice to know that some things never change. It looks exactly the same. Is Valley Fair still here? Is Valco still here? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, but one of the super exciting things is to see just all the different ways that God has been working through current. I spoke a long time ago at the community center. I don't know if any of you were there at the time. Spoke coming out of COVID at the Hyatt. God was doing an amazing thing. And now to be here at the Computer History Museum, there is nothing that could be more Silicon Valley than the Computer History Museum. I come from an area of Southern California called the Inland Empire. Okay, like in Hollywood, they shoot movies. In LA, they shoot TV shows. In the Inland Empire, they just shoot people, really. And so we don't have anything called the Computer History Museum. Nobody would fathom having a Computer History Museum. But honestly, like, I am just so proud of what God is doing through this church. Can I tell you this? Oftentimes when you're really close to the miracle, you just can't see it. And for you to be as a church on the other end of COVID in Silicon Valley, doing what it is that you're doing, now going to two gatherings, just shows a hand of God and a favor of the Lord upon you guys. And honestly, I think a big part of that is your leadership. I have known your pastor, Pastor David, for about a decade now. And I wanna let you guys know something. As somebody who knows him behind the scenes and behind the screens, there is no, nobody who is more genuine. There is nobody who is more authentic. There is nobody who loves God, loves his family, loves his church more than him. And so real quickly, I know that he's not even here today because he's super sick, but would you honor Pastor David and Cindy by just giving them a huge round of applause real quickly. Did you know that there are a lot of one-star reviews of the Grand Canyon? I wish the Grand Canyon would kind of up its game a little bit, you know? One of the most undisputed natural wonders of the world. If you were to go online, you will find some pretty interesting 
reviews of the Grand Canyon, uh, uh, reviews like this right here. Uh, walking up, not as much fun as walking down. False advertising. It's a canyon. I'm not, I'm not sure that is false advertising. Here's another review that you'll find just a big dumb ground hole. Put in a roller coaster and some dip and dot stands and we'll talk. No one cares about crack erosion. Now, first of all, <laughs> I love me some dip and dots just like the next guy. But honestly, it's the next part of the, the review that I want to talk about. Nobody cares about crack erosion. I don't even know what that means. What is crack erosion? What crack? Whose crack are we talking about? I don't know. Here's another review that you'll find online. Depends on what donkey you get, Nina. <laughs> Who's Nina? What is going on here? Is Nina the donkey? Is Nina a good donkey? Is Nina a bad donkey? I'm not too sure. Inquiring minds want to know this. Here's the last review that we'll talk about right here. Decent view, but lost my favorite pants. <laughs> Will not be back. Loved those pants. Loved. You know, I read this review, and I'm kind of like, you know what? I think this, might want, this one might be on you, buddy. I'm not sure if you can blame the Grand Canyon on that. You know what I'm saying? So here's probably the case. A lot of people this summer want to go through the Grand Canyon, but, you know, somebody's looking up some of these reviews online, and they're like, you know what? Man, I really wanted to go through the Grand Canyon. But people are losing their pants. Can't find a good donkey these days. What you're going to find if you go online is that there's a whole bunch of, uh, I would say, half-truths, memes, hot takes, written by people who don't know what they're talking about in order to purport a false narrative. Would you agree with that? You see this all the time with politics, people taking things out of context, quotes out of context, memes, hot takes written about certain people in order to... Uh, written by people who don't know what they're talking about in order to purport false narratives. And here's what you have to understand, that not only are these things uh, being written about the Grand Canyon, but, the, but these things are also being written about the church, too. You want to see a couple memes that I discovered online? Here's a meme right here. Is it bad that I don't miss going to church? I actually feel drama-free. And it's like, oh, this person probably goes to my church. Here's another meme right here. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. This person has obviously never seen the Super Bowl. He gets us commercial. <laughs> Number three, the church should be about multiplication, not division. Half-truths, half-truths. Written by somebody who may not necessarily know the entire story, in order to purport a narrative that may, may not necessarily be entirely true. Here's, here, here's a problem, though. Do you know what's wrong with a half-truth, especially in regards to the church? It's the fact that it's half-true, isn't it? And here's what you and I know, especially as it pertains to some of those memes that we read about the church, and that is this. You and I have lived through the past four years of an incredible amount of tribalism. You were either with them or you were with us. You can use one word in this day and age and be villainized. You can go to your Thanksgiving meal with family members and fight over political issues, social issues, theological issues, even though your family members, can I tell you this? 
All of us have experienced this in the room. 30 years of friendship up in smokes just because we added one word on our Instagram post. And with one action, it was like, defriend, canceled. Well, knowing us for 30 years, all of a sudden it was like, you know, I'm not going to give that person the benefit of the doubt because they used that trigger word on me. I love what Anne Lamott said when she said this right here, that you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. So let me ask you a quick question, and that's this question right here. Let me ask you a quick question. That's this question right here. What, would you, what is the most controversial part of Jesus' ministry? What would you say is the most controversial part of Jesus' ministry? Was it the kind of truth bombs that Jesus would drop in his sermons? As he would speak with the kind of authority that no one had ever heard. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Was it, the kind of the, was it the kind of disciples that Jesus chose? Because let's be honest, Jesus chose some pretty sketchy disciples. They would say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on that village over there? And it's almost as if you're new to the church and all the, all the staff on this church were going to Pastor David going, shall we just burn down San Francisco? Was it the, was it the kind of controversial interpretations that he would have of Scripture? I would say the most controversial part of Jesus' ministry, do we have that picture? Is actually this right here. It's who Jesus ate with. It's who he would associate with. It's who he would share his table with. Who Jesus shared his table with and how it is that Jesus used the table Believe it or not, was actually the most controversial part of who it is that Jesus was and what he did. And if you don't believe me, let's go ahead and look in Scripture. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, we're going to go ahead and throw them right up on the screen. Would you all just do this? At my church, we'll, uh, we'll do this. Uh, would you all stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning? Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 3, it says this here. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, we're going to talk about that in just a second. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners. It's amazing how those two words just go right together, don't they? Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with them? What? The tax collectors and sinners. You better watch out the kind of conversations that you have in Jesus' presence because apparently his spidey sense was tingling just a little bit. And on hearing this, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but who? The sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You guys can go ahead and have a seat this morning. I want to go ahead and look at that verse one more time. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he share the table with the likes of them? I don't understand it. How could he do something like that? Here's what you have to understand. That the table, we got to understand something about the table. That the table is a very, very important place. 
And the table is a very sacred space. And if you don't believe me, here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you to go to a wedding uninvited and grab a chair and bring it right up to the head table and see if the groomsmen have anything to say about that. In fact, what you'll find is that if you go to any wedding, you know how important you are by how close you are to where you're seated, what what table you're at, and how close that is to the head table. And if you're super close to the head table, you're probably a pretty important person. And if you're not super close to the head table, then they probably don't think you're going to give them that much money. (laughs) You know, unless you think that I'm dramatizing this or over-exaggerating this, even at your Thanksgiving meal... You had two different tables that were represented. You had the adult table and the the kids' table. And you were 30 years old wondering why you were sitting at the kids' table when you made more money than everybody else in the room. (laughs) The table is such an important place. It's such a sacred space. The table, yes, is a place of respite. It is a place where we eat. It is a place where we enjoy. It is a place where we re-energize. It is a place where we reconnect with those people in our lives that are the most important people in our lives. However, might I suggest that throughout history, the table has also been used as a tool of oppression. And if you don't believe me, next slide. The table has been used to designate who it is that's in and who it is that's out. Who it is that's important, who it is that's unimportant. Next slide. Who it is that is to be honored and who it is that is to be dishonored. Real quickly, here's a picture of a Roman coin. And what you will find is that on the Roman coin, you have a picture on one side of the most important person in the Roman Empire and the least important person in the Roman Empire. Obviously, the person on the right, your left, is a picture of Caesar, the most important, the most powerful person in the Roman Empire. But if you know what this is right here, that is a picture of the least important person with a Roman soldier on his foot of the neck of a Jewish person. Wherever you went, whether it be the Roman centurion that you saw on the street corner or the very coin that you held in your hand, the Romans were out to portray a message everywhere that they went. That is that. We own you. We will oppress you that you will have no rights and that you will have no identity outside of the one that I give you. And so naturally, the Jewish people, having a very theocentric view, God-oriented view, would want to know, why, God, would you allow this to happen to us? And being spiritually God-focused people, they just surmise that the reason why God would allow the Romans to oppress us. All we have to do is look back into history. Well, why would God allow the Babylonians to oppress us? Why would God allow the Assyrians to take us into exile? Oh, I know. It is because we have been unfaithful to Torah. It is because we have been unfaithful to God. And so there was a Jewish renewal movement called the Pharisees 
that tried to rectify that problem by going, well, if the problem was that we were unfaithful to God, well, the answer is then for us to be hyper-vigilant to Torah. So they made it a point to try and make every house a temple, every person a priest, and every table an altar. A table that was meant to be kept pure table that was meant to keep out the riffraff, a table that was only meant to include God's chosen people. And so all of a sudden, imagine the disciples surprised when Jesus walks in the door and says, hey, everybody, I invited somebody over for dinner. And they're like, oh, no, you didn't. And Jesus goes, oh, yes, I did. Matthew, Matt, and his funky bunch are coming over tonight, and we are going to party. Because here's what you have to understand. Jesus had such a completely different view of how to use the table than we have of how it is that we should use the table. We want to use the table of keeping certain people out, not Jesus. Jesus wanted to use the table as a way of bringing people in. Jesus wanted to use the table as a means in which he could bridge the gap between him and the person who did not look like him, the person who did not think like him, the person who may not have been oriented like him. In fact, can I ask you this? Anybody a racist here? Would you go ahead and raise your hand? If you're a racist, just go, go ahead and raise your hand. Anybody a homophobe? Would you go ahead and just raise your hand? Would you raise your hand? Part of the reason why I ask that question is because none of us really think that we're that. You know why? Because the calculus or way, the way that we evaluate that question is, well, I don't have any malice. I don't have any hatred towards these people. So I can't be any of those things. However, it's important for you and me to understand what is the goal of human relationships. Jesus did not say, um, and this is how you, all men will know that you are my disciples if you tolerate one another. According to what it is that we're talking about, and according to the life and the actions of Jesus, the real way that we evaluate that question is this, that when you have a dinner party, is there anyone sitting at that table that looks different than you? Is there anybody at that table that thinks different than you? Is there anybody at that table that believes differently from you? In fact, when you throw a 4th of July party and everybody's gathered around the grill, is there anybody, is there anybody in that circle who is different from you? Because that is the way that Jesus conducted his life. And that is the way that Jesus conducted his ministry. Now, believe it or not, the table was something so important to the practice of Jesus that the Apostle Paul actually said that if you don't do the table right, that you will actually come underneath my discipline even. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is talking about the church's abuse of the what? Of the table. And we always read this as communion, but it was something so much greater than this. And believe it or not, this was the Apostle Paul's harshest rebuke of the Corinthian church. He was saying this, that the Christian church and that the table is at the only place in the world where uh, non-like-minded people will come together. It is the only place where Jew and Greek, slave and free, man and woman, 
rich and poor will come together in order to share a meal. However, if you know what's going on in the Corinthian church, the rich people are coming early to the church potluck. They're, they're eating everything up. They're getting stone cold drunk in the process. The poor people are coming after work because they're poor. Everything's been eaten up and they feel super awkward that they're on the outside while everybody's having a jolly good time. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Man, here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you and me to wrestle with that verse a little bit. Do you know why? Because God is disciplining people with sickness and with death because they are perverting God's mission for the world. And here's the deal, just in case you and I have a tendency to be like, you know, I just, I just don't believe in that kind of God. God would never do something like that. Here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love to challenge you to read your Bible in context. And my goal isn't to get you to be like, whoa, God sure is a scary God. Okay, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. I think every so often what happens is this. God creates something so impactful. God creates something so beautiful that it's actually worth protecting. Listen, Tim Chester says that there are three different ways that the New Testament completes this sentence, that the Son of Man came to. Three different ways that the New Testament completes that sentence. The Son of Man came to. You might know one or maybe two of them. You might not know the third. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lastly, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He says this, that the first two statements speak to why it is that Jesus came, and the last one speaks about how it is that he did it. That in other words, what did Jesus come to do? He came to seek and to save the lost. And how did he do it? By eating and drinking. What if the most impactful thing that you could do this year was to eat? Can I get an amen to that? What if the most powerful spiritual discipline that you, could, that you could employ in your life was actually through your eating and drinking? Can I get an amen to that? Arthur Boaz says this, you can't read the Gospels without getting hungry. You know why? Because if you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either heading to a meal, he is either coming from a meal, or he is at a meal. And sometimes we forget this. When people every so often talk about heaven, do you know what I hear? I hear this. You on a fluffy cloud playing a harp with a beautiful white robe on. And I'm always, I'm always like this, bruh, where are you getting your intel from? Because when the Bible talks about heaven, do you know what it describes? It describes a beautiful celebratory feast of love. Can I ask you this real quickly? Uh, what is the best meal that you have ever had in your life? 
What's the best meal that you've ever had? Pastor David and I actually share the same mentor. And so every so often when he, he comes down to Southern California, he understands that a lot of us church planters don't really have very much money. So he will actually take us to the nice, what I think is the nicest restaurant in Orange County. And it's a place called Mastro's Ocean Club. Anybody ever heard of it? Is there a Mastro's out here? It's called Mastro's Ocean Club. It is right on Newport Beach overlooking the ocean. And it is the most beautiful place that you you have ever been. I will fast for two days before that meal because I'm about to have a religious experience, okay? He will order the seafood tower and the seafood tower, the oysters and the crab legs and the shrimp. It will come out and it looks like it's on fire because there's dry ice inside of it. It will come out smoking. And then all of a sudden, there's my order. It'll come out. The 18-ounce bone-in filet <laughs> with a finely paired Malbec. And I'm like, I want to go to heaven. But I want, you to, I want you to stay with me for a second because that's how Jesus gives us even a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Almost every description that Jesus has of heaven is not only us being in the presence of God, but us experiencing that by the goodness of a meal, by the goodness of a party, by the goodness of a wedding. All of a sudden, I want the entire world to experience what it is that I'm experiencing. This glimpse of not only God's literally peace of heaven on earth, but if this is what it feels like to have my sins forgiven, if this is what it feels like to live in the grace of God, if this is what it feels feels like to not have to earn my father's love, but to bask in the operating system of his grace, then let me tell you this. I want the whole world to be able to experience what it is that I'm experiencing. Alan Hirsch says this right here. If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around a table once a week to neighbors, we could actually eat our way into the kingdom of heaven. How many of you would want to eat your way into the kingdom of heaven? Sign me up. Here's the truth. Most of us eat three meals a day. Given the span of a year, that is 1,095 meals that we are going to have this year. This week, you will do 21 meals. Here's the question that I have for you. Will you give one of them, one of those, this week to somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Especially as you guys are going to two services next week. What an amazing opportunity to be able to get around the table with somebody, to be able to share life with them, and if and when the opportunity comes up to be able to invite them to come to church and to be able to explore something that maybe they've never explored in their entire lives. Now, I understand that some of you may be in a season of sowing and some of you may be in a season of reaping. If some of you are in a season of sowing, then maybe it wouldn't be the best idea for you to invite somebody to church right away. Because I understand there's a relationship 
that needs to be built. There's credibility that needs to be built in the process. But can I tell you this? Some of you have invested and you have sown those seeds year after year after year of trying to be a good witness in your faith. And this, this might be the perfect opportunity for you to go, hey, like, are you doing anything for lunch? We'd love to just kind of hang out. Here's what I oftentimes do. I don't get weird about it, and I don't just say, hey, you want to come with me to church? I'll go, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Uh, you know, I don't really have any plans. I'm just going to hang out. Really? Yeah, because, you know, me and so-and-so, me and my, my wife, we're, you know, uh, we're going to be going to church on Sunday. You've probably heard me talk about it before. You're more than welcome to come. We'd love to have you, and then maybe we could go out for lunch afterwards. It could just be as fluid as that. Can I tell you this? You and I both know that, every, that so many people are in Silicon Valley are chasing after something ultimately that will never satisfy them. Their job will never satisfy them. Their marriage will never fill something that God was meant to fill in their life, which is part of the reason why Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and if you eat of me, that you will never go hungry again. That I am the living water. And I will be able to quench a thirst within somebody else that nothing else would be able to quench. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is this. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 through 2. It says this right here. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money. So evidently he's talking to all the millennials in Silicon Valley. Um, all you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what will not ultimately satisfy you? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. I'm not a big fan of street preachers. The guys who are like in front of Levi's Stadium with a bullhorn telling everybody that they're going to go to hell. Like not a huge fan of that. However, if I were a street preacher, here's how I would do it. I would just stand on the corner passing out filet mignon <laughs> is what I would do. And I would say this. I would say, I've got a message for you. Come, all you who are thirsty, and come to the waters. All you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without honey and without cost. Why spend your time and your money and your life on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is truly good, and you will delight in the richest of Here's what I want you to know, that contrary to popular belief, do you know what you have to offer people in the gospel? It's not judgment. It's not criticism. It's not anger. It's love, acceptance, forgiveness, and an invitation to the table with that person's name right on it. And the question that you and I have to ask is, will we have the courage and will we have the faith to invite that person to that seat? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, We love you so much. Very controversial statement, especially if you're a real Bible nerd. We love you so much 
that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God. Oh, I thought the gospel was enough. Apparently, it's not just intellectual, but it's relational. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but the gospel in action through my life as well. Uh, I have a story about how uh, I have two sisters. They're not, they're not Christian. One lives in Capitola. Boo, yeah. Like, I always love staying with her. But I have one sister that lives pretty close to me, and I always invite her to church. I invite her to church. I invite her to church. I invite her to church. She always like, yeah, 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 maybe I'll come sometime. Maybe I'll come sometime. There's this one time, I was like, Julia, is Easter coming up? You've got to come to church. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Come on, don't you want to see your little brother's Little League game? Come on. It's going to be so fun. Uh, then she goes, oh, yeah, 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 totally. I'll think about it. Hey, just got a quick question for you, though. Um, just wanted to know, why do you always invite me to your church, but you never invite me to your home? Anybody have an older sister? Anybody have an older Would you raise your hand if you have an older sister? Okay, yeah. Older sisters have a way of grabbing you by the crotch at times. And just... Can I tell you this? Do you know what... Do you know how God wants to influence the Bay Area with the gospel? Do you know how God wants to flood this area with his love? It's not through a new current website... It's not through a really amazing social media. His master plan is actually through you. You with a heart full of the love of Jesus, thinking seriously about the 21 options that you will have this week to create space for people in every neighborhood, every industry, every community to experience the glory and the beauty of Jesus. That is God's master plan for the Bay Area. So you might want to save your time a little bit. You might want to schedule that into your time a little bit. You might want to save a little bit of money. You know why? Because Mastro's Ocean Club ain't cheap. Okay. So real quickly, Cindy, are you here? Would like to invite Cindy up. Cindy's going to say a few words. Awkward transition. Uh, I was so enthralled, I couldn't come up quickly. Thank, can we give Mark a big thank you for his message? Yeah. I, uh, as a church that is uh, constantly trying to figure out new ways to engage, you know, if you are here and you've never come to the table, uh, maybe you've never received uh, Jesus or decided to follow him. We're so glad that you're here. And we hope that over the next couple of weeks, um, this, this word, this powerful uh, love, that uh, living water um, and acceptance that Jesus offers to us um, would be real to you as well. So we're so grateful for Mark's ministry. Mark, would you take a minute and um, pray uh, a blessing over us as we make this big transition. I would love that. Yeah. Why don't you guys stand up as we pray out? I have a, can, I, can I say a tactical thing and also just a personal thing real quick? You guys are only on one service, so it's kind of nice that we don't have to uh, get the parking lot all cleared and everything. Sorry, we have four services at our church. 
So we can't dilly-dally on a Sunday morning, but we can kind of sit in this moment for a little bit. Number one, from a tactical standpoint, like church planting-wise, here's what some church people say, some mentors say, that you want to go to two services as quickly as possible, but you want to go to three services as slowly as possible. So there may be a sense in which you're like, why are you doing this? Like, I don't understand. Part of the reason why you're doing this is because you have some Navy SEALs in that children's ministry that have not been able to enjoy the moment that you've been able to enjoy, which is to just come to service, to be fed, and then to go home. You have some people who now, not only will you be making space for your friends and family members to come and hear the gospel, but you will be making space for your own brothers and sisters who probably need just a brief moment of rest and respite for them to go back into the fight next week. So to do it even for your fellow soldiers, your fellow uh, fellow family members is so key. I had like kind of this, this uh, I don't know if it was a vision or something like that while I was standing there, but I'm so thankful for this church. Do you know why? Because when I, I didn't accept Christ until my freshman year in college, and from 1975 to 1985, I lived in San Jose, California, and I never, and I never heard the gospel. Like, nobody ever shared it with me. I didn't even know anybody was, I didn't even, maybe I knew that there was a God, but nobody, I don't know. Did I know there was a church? And so for you guys to be the fruition of something that I was missing out in my childhood, like I came to accept Christ my freshman year. I was sharing this with a friend over breakfast. God, I was a flaming pagan. I mean, I just had Christ nowhere in my life until my freshman year in college. And he just radically transformed the trajectory of my life. And so I'm just kind of thinking if Jesus did with he, what he did with just 12 disciples. Wow. How many people are in this room right now? 200. Wow. What could God do with 200 people filled with the heart of the love of Jesus, thinking seriously about those 20, 21 opportunities to share his love. So I would love to be able to pray with you guys. Why don't you just bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, Lord, we look at all of the things that we can see that are to uh, this church's advantage. We see these people uh, sitting here that are just so, so eager and so in love with you. We see a staff, Lord God, who is so committed to you. We see a wonderful church, uh, uh, a facility, a building here. It's beautiful. It's new. It's a wonderful place to meet. But at the same time, if we have all of those things, but we have not you, if we have everything, every worldly advantage on our side, but we have not the favor of your Holy Spirit, God, at the end of the day, we have nothing. And so here's what we invite Here's where we invite you, God, because we are just so dependent upon you in our lives to change our lives. We are so dependent upon you to change this region, Lord God, and we cannot do anything without you. Father, and here's what we want to do. We want to be able to look back one day, not only to know that we've built a portfolio. We want to look back one day, not only to say that we've built a a, a a a career or a profession or a family, we want to be able to look back on that one day to say that I built the only thing that will last throughout all of eternity, and that's called the kingdom of God. So we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we get to be a part of a place where you are obviously moving. Pray that, Father, we would not take that for granted. 
And as we go to two services next week, Father, we pray that, God, that you would be over all the gremlins that are going to be in the tech system and all the things that are going to go wrong. It's going to feel like we're starting all over again. But, Lord God, we pray that, Father, throughout all of the hiccups, God, that you would just help us to steady and to fix our eyes upon you. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.